0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 40, the book of Acts, chapters 17 and 18. Well, we are in Acts chapter 17, and last week we ended our study with defining the belief systems of two groups that Paul encountered when he was in Athens, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now these two groups in no way passed for religions or held themselves up as religions. They were philosophies. In fact, it would be probably fair to say that the goal of these two philosophical institutions was to be the replacement of religion. I think it would also be accurate to say that the Epicureanism and Stoicism philosophies were competitors to Judaism. Therefore, they were competitors to the way. Now, Essentially, these human philosophies were alternative attempts to help pagans come to terms with life. Something that Judaism and true Biblical Hebrewism had done successfully since the days of Moses. And when given a fair hearing, there is no doubt that Judaism and Christianity have never been surpassed when it comes to creating a good, just, and workable system of law and society on earth. Because both of these ways of life are based on God's truth, as opposed to mankind's inclinations. Well, over the centuries, the foundational premises of Epicureanism and Stoicism have have hung around, just morphing into the latest cultural trends and political correctness and, and being given new names in the modern era the European enlightenment of the 18th century adopted these same beliefs just in new packaging and the goal was to eradicate religion especially that that contained any sort of mysticism to eradicate it from European society the main targets of course then were Christianity and Judaism it has largely succeeded in contemporary 21st century times we call this same goal to abolish religion secularism a lot of isms or we speak of it politically politically as liberal, progressive ideals. So what Paul was confronting in Athens, in first century A.D., followers of the God of Israel are confronting today. So to a degree, just how Paul faced this great challenge Challenge is a good model for us in our time, and it's a rather simple model. So just remember this don't ever back down. Don't ever back down. That was Paul's model. Tell the divine truths, let the chips fall where they may. Don't try to find middle ground with those who choose secular philosophy over trusting God because there isn't any whatever you might see is just a mirage at best any attempt to find common ground will do nothing but frustrate you or at worst draw you towards their way of thinking and away from the Lord 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 18 says do not yoke yourselves together in a team with unbelievers for how can righteousness and lawlessness be partners what fellowship does light have with darkness, what harmony can there be between the Messiah and Belial what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will house myself in them. I will walk among you. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, Adonai says, go out from their midst. Separate yourselves. Don't even touch what's unclean. Then I myself will receive you. In fact... I'll be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says Adonai Seifahot. We see the effects of of both Judaism and Christianity's attempts to make peace with secular liberal philosophy in the deteriorating health of both religions. In Judaism, the most popular, the fastest growing segment is called Reform Judaism. Reform Judaism is essentially Judaism with a lesser God, with a watered-down holy book, with fewer absolutes. Reform doctrines created by committees are their standard for living. They're designed to compromise with the ebb and flow of time and societal evolution. In Christianity we have a number of forms of it, with the most recent being what's called the emergent church. And while a belief in God remains, theirs is a God of tolerance who embraces all forms of religion and worship. The Judeo-Christian holy book, the Bible, while not quite obsolete, is mostly optional, with all of the other world's religions' holy books seen as equally valid and worthy. Each person, then, is left to discern their own truth, their own way of life, none having more merit or value than another. So let's see how Paul handled this troubling situation that he found in Athens that Luke, says, shook Paul to his core, And then see if we can derive from it how we ought to deal with a similar situation in our day, both within and without the church and the synagogue. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start reading at verse 18. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, we'll be on page 1385. 1385. Acts 17, starting at verse 18. Also a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers started meeting with him. Some asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others, because he proclaimed the good news about Yeshua and the resurrection, said, he sounds like a propagandist for foreign gods well they took and brought him before the high council saying may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting and some of the things we're hearing from you strike us as strange and we would like to know what they mean all the Athenians and the foreigners living there used to spend their spare time talking or hearing about the latest intellectual fads Shaul, Paul stood up in the council meeting and he said men of Athens, oh I see how very religious you are in every way For as I was walking around, I was looking at your shrines, I even found an altar which had been inscribed to an unknown God. So, the one whom you are already worshipping in ignorance, this is the one I proclaim to you. The God who made the universe and everything in it and who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in man-made temples, nor is he served by human hands, as if he lacks something since it is He Himself who gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man, He made every nation living on the entire surface of the earth. He fixed the limits of their territories and the periods when they would flourish. God did this so that people would look for Him, perhaps reach out, find Him, although, in fact, He's not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, Indeed, as some of the poets among you have said, we are actually his children. So since we are children of God, we shouldn't suppose that God's essence resembles gold, silver, stone, shaped by human technique and imagination. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he's commanding all people everywhere to turn to him from their sins. For he has set a day when he will judge the inhabited world and do it justly by means of a man whom he has designated and he has given public proof of it by resurrecting this man from the dead well at the mention of resurrection of dead people some began to scoff while others said we want to hear you again on this subject so Shaul left the meeting but some men stayed with him and they came to trust including the high council member Dionysius there was also a woman named Damaris others came to trust along with them It is interesting how the Epicureans and the Stoics accused Paul of trying to introduce foreign gods. Let's talk about that. These two philosophies had little regard for gods in the first place. They didn't worship any gods or goddesses. So why would they care if Paul was introducing foreign gods to Athens? Well, first, it was because they were essentially trying to rid Athens of religion. And the last thing they needed was some new gods that might become popular when introduced. Second, then as now, people love new fashion and new trends. And they were also loyal to Greece. And even though they might not have any regard for these Greek gods, they didn't want some foreigner bringing their gods into Greek society. And we find this same dynamic at play today among atheists who are by definition secular and liberal. They are the Stoics of our day. They don't believe that God or gods exist. Yet, you or I can't have a God. We can't worship our God openly because that makes them feel threatened, they say. How can they feel threatened by a God that's no more than a fantasy? I wonder if the Avengers make them feel threatened too since they don't exist either. So just as liberal secularists today take Christians and Jews to court to stop us from worshiping God publicly, a God who they say doesn't even exist, so did the Stoics and the Epicureans take Paul to court to stop him from worshiping God who they say doesn't exist. This court in Athens is well known in history. It's called the Court of Areopagus. This court was established centuries earlier to regulate religion and morals. It is interesting that it received its name from the formal designation for the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war, this hill where they were meeting. Now in reality, Paul was not brought to a judicial trial. These people loved exploring new ideas. And of course, denigrating the ones that they thought were unintelligent. So he was brought to this court to explain this religion of his to the religion experts whose job it was to examine Paul's claims. Well, verse 21 comments that the city's grand intellectual inquisitors spent all their time exploring the latest intellectual fads. Today this occupation seems to be the province of our most admired universities. Not much new under the sun, is there? But policy was no pansy. Paul was intellectual too, highly educated and trained. He was used to grinding debates, unafraid of confrontation. Jewish literature is filled to the brim with recorded arguments between the brilliant Jewish sages and rabbis and the many Gentile philosophers. So this sort of debate was not new to Paul he was also fluent in Greek. He was comfortable, familiar with the pagan world. And as we learn from his epistles, he was a fearless and able defender of the faith. So Paul looked around and he noticed that of this veritable garden of idols surrounding him, at the hill of Are stood one statue that was marked to an unknown god. So says Paul, since you're already worshipping this God that you don't know anything about, let me introduce him to you. Now those words could not have been for those who brought him before the court of Areopagus because they were anything but religious. However, those on the court... And the many Athenian spectators who spent so much of their time in idleness listening in on these empty debates that were kind of the daytime television of first century Athens they were religious. And so Paul was addressing himself to them. Now remember, Paul's goal isn't to rebut these philosophers as much as it is to have a stage to speak the truth of the gospel to these pagans. So Paul begins to explain just who God is. At first, nothing Paul is saying offends his audience. That's because he's but imparting new and interesting information. The first thing Paul does is to explain the sovereignty of God over all things. And he does this by making the logical argument that since his God created all things, including life itself, therefore he is superior and he is above all things, especially above man-made things. Therefore, it would be inappropriate for Paul's God to live in temples, Fashioned by human workmanship, and this God can't be coddled and served with the finest things on earth because He didn't need humans for anything whatsoever. The God of Israel is the epitome of self reliance. Paul continues in verse 26 and he explains that God began the human race from one individual whom He created. So every human being who populates the many nations of the earth came from this first individual. The audience included, that's the implication. Even more, it was Paul's God who decided not only on the boundaries of nations, but also the boundaries of the earth itself. Now I want to pause to make a point. I said a few minutes ago that Paul's defense of the gospel to pagans especially to pagan intellectuals, is a good model for us. Now notice how, to this point anyway, the outspoken and often harsh Paul has, for him, been pretty subdued and gentle. He hasn't spoken down to these pagans about their ignorance of the truth. But also notice... He begins at the beginning and not one word of Holy Scripture is being quoted not a word why not? well, pagans have no idea about the source of those biblical passages and even if they didn't know I mean, rather, even if they did know they wouldn't give those words any special credibility so Paul has to debate them In a language and using terms that have meaning to them. That is exactly what we must do in our era for speaking God's truth to people who don't know who God is. And it will necessarily have to be culturally specific. Paul was speaking in a way that the Athenians could understand. Whether they agreed with him or not, that's another matter. So we don't hear him use words like Messiah, Redemption, Blood of Christ, Torah. First, a context with a foundational base of knowledge has to be built. So Paul says that God established humans and nations and He gave them what they needed so that they would reach out to Him. That is, God would create evidence of Himself and thus humanity would recognize that something greater than themselves had to have created all that they see. And so begin a search for that something. It might surprise you to learn that several things that Paul says to the Athenians in these passages are taken directly from a source that these Greeks would recognize. He quotes from Epimenides, then Eratus. In verse 28 when Paul says, For in him we live and move and exist, do you know that's actually taken from a quatrain written by Epimenides, written for the purpose of criticizing the tomb of the god Zeus. Then when Paul says, we are actually his children, that originally was a sentence composed by the Greek poet Cleanthes, and then made very popular in a book written by Eretus. And those words were meant to argue that God is willing to let humankind serve Him because He has many needs that must be served. But Paul turns this meaning into something else entirely and he argues that since all humans are God's children then we shouldn't be making human-looking idols since we are made in the image of God and God is not a human. So Paul is not so much building a case, at least not yet, against the Greek gods as much as he is building a case of how God is to be properly characterized therefore how he's to be worshipped and if God is not a human then it's improper to characterize him in various human forms idols but now Paul raises his oratory up a notch in verse 30 as he says that in times past, God in His great mercy did not act upon these wrong actions of Gentile humanity because they were merely done in ignorance however now God's commanding the time has come to put away this ignorance and instead to gain knowledge of the true God and to turn from sin these are fighting words because Paul is telling these highly educated Athenians that their centuries-old God system is actually ignorance and it amounts to sin from which they must turn away. Next, Paul begins to make his case for Yeshua and he tells his audience that a day is coming when God will judge the world. And it will be through the agency of a certain man that this judging occurs. And that the identity of this man is evident. And the proof of it is that God resurrected this man from the dead. And these thoughts were foreign to any Greek way of thinking. The only nation that had a tradition of a coming day of worldwide judgment by a god was the Hebrew nation, the Jews. Now considering who he was dealing with, the very first thing that the Athenians had to learn then was to turn away from their idols. See, this was also the first thing that the pagan Thessalonians had to learn. As we hear from Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, there in verses 7-9 through 9 he says, Thus you became a pattern for all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but everywhere your trust towards God became known. The result is that we don't need to say anything since they themselves kept telling us about the welcome we received from you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true God, the one who's alive. Now we don't have to work too hard to imagine the growing upset amongst those who were listening to Paul. Paul was challenging the very core of Athenian religious life but Luke says that what brought many of the crowd to the boiling point interestingly was this issue of resurrection now others didn't dismiss it out of hand because intellectuals and academics have a habit for the better or the worse of never closing off any line of thought in case new information might surface and they wanted to hear more on this matter uh, from Paul, but but an immortal soul that was not unfamiliar within Greek thought. Even though the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers wouldn't accept such a thing, even so, like with the Hebrew Sadducees, a bodily resurrection was seen by them as impossible. Now, notice a couple of things before we move on to chapter eighteen. First, nothing is made of Paul's Jewishness. There seems to have been no ethnic bigotry going on here. In fact, Paul was given a pretty fair and respectful hearing. Now, no doubt it was helpful that Paul spoke fluent Greek. But then again, so did most Jews in that era, Jews who lived in the diaspora. So when Paul was done speaking, he left. And there's no mention of him being detained, arrested, harassed. Another thing to notice, and really keep noticing it right on through the final words of the New Testament, it is that no one perceived a believer in Yeshua, like Paul, as being part of a new and distinct group of people Jews perceived the way by now a mixture of Jews and Gentiles as but another of the several factions of Judaism Gentiles didn't know enough about Judaism or Jewishness to make any kind of a distinction about those Jewish sects so for them those who followed Christ were just Jews. Or they were Gentiles who adhered to Judaism. The point is that whereas we hear Bible teachers and commentators refer to believers at this time as Christians, oh, that creates such a false mental picture. Because it imparts this sense that a new religion had been created called Christianity. Christianity which was separate from Judaism, separate from paganism. And eventually that would happen. But not until after the close of the Bible. So nowhere in the New Testament will we ever find such a thought. But what is truly astounding is how the Lord worked through Paul in this crowd of Greeks, surrounded and examined By the best, most persuasive philosophers and statue after statue of Greek gods and goddesses all around him, some of his listeners actually came to believe. In fact, one of the new believers was Dionysius, who was a member of the court. And interestingly, it is a Christian tradition spoken about by the early church father Eusebius, that Dionysius became the first church bishop of Athens. Luke also informs us that a woman named Damaris came to Christ. What we do not read about is any baptisms, no immersions. So, no doubt, this was a sad ending to Paul's efforts in Athens. Well, let's move on to chapter 18 now. Acts chapter 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1386. Thirteen eighty six. After this, Shaul, Paul, left Athens and he went to Corinth, where he met a Jewish man named Aquila, originally from Pontus. But having recently come with his wife Priscilla from Italy, because Claudius had issued a decree expelling all the Jews from Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he had the same trade as they, making tents, he stayed on with them, and they worked together. Shaul also began carrying on discussions every Shabbat in the synagogue where he tried to convince both Jews and Greeks. But after Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Shaul felt pressed by the urgency of the message and testified in depth to the Jews that Yeshua is the Messiah. However, when they set themselves against him and began hurling insults, he shook out his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. For my part, I'm clean. From now on, I'll go to the GoYim, to the Gentiles. So he left them, and he went to the home of a God-fearer named Titius Justus, whose house was right next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the president of the synagogue, came to trust in the Lord, along with his whole household. Also, many of the Corinthians who heard trusted, and they were immersed. Well, one night in a vision, the Lord said to Shaul, Don't be afraid, but speak right up. Don't stop. Because I'm with you. No one will succeed in harming you, for I have many people in this city. So Shaul stayed there for a year and a half, teaching them about the word of the Lord. But when Gallio became the Roman governor of Achaia, the unbelieving Jews made a concerted attack on Shaul and took him to court saying, this man is trying to persuade people to worship God in ways that violate the Torah. And Shaul was just about to open his mouth when Gallio said to the Jews, listen you Jews, if this were a case of inflicted injury or a serious crime, I could reasonably be expected to hear you out patiently. But since it involves questions about words and names and, and your own law, you must deal with it yourselves. I flatly refuse to judge such matters. And he had them ejected from the court. They all grabbed Sosthenes, the president of the synagogue, and gave him a beating in full view of the bench. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. While Shaul remained for some time Then said goodbye to the brothers and he sailed off to Syria after having his hair cut short in Kentreya because he had taken a vow. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and he held dialogue with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay with them longer, he declined. However, in his farewell he said, God willing, I will come back to you. And then he set Sail from Ephesus. After landing in Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the Messianic community. Then he came down to Antioch. He spent some time there and afterwards set out and passed systematically through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Well, meanwhile, a Jewish man named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now, he was an eloquent speaker with a thorough knowledge of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. And this man had been informed about the way of the Lord and with great spiritual fervor he spoke and he taught accurately the facts about Yeshua but he knew only the immersion of Yochanan, John the baptism of John and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of God in fuller detail And when he made plans to cross over into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples there to welcome him. And on arrival he greatly helped those who through grace had come to trust. For he powerfully, conclusively refuted the unbelieving Jews in public, demonstrating by the Tanakh that Yeshua is the Messiah. Well, from Athens, Paul went to Corinth. Now, Corinth, of course, is the subject audience of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. Now, I'd like you to pay close attention to what goes on in Corinth here in chapter 18 because, you see, this provides the background context to understand both the tone and the issues that Paul addresses with the Corinthians in the New Testament books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The good news is, for, for the first time in a while, Paul didn't leave a city, Athens, in a state of riot after he left there. And he wasn't being chased or hounded, nor had he been roughed up or jailed. I mean, this is almost a first for Paul. Now, the bad news is, we're not given a clue as to why Paul decided to go to Corinth. So we're not going to speculate about it. However, we can determine that it is nearly certain that Paul arrived in Corinth in 50 AD. That means it's been somewhere between 15 and 20 years since Yeshua died on the cross and Jerusalem. Now Corinth was an important place. It was located on the isthmus of Corinth and thus was an ideally suited center for commerce and shipping. It was a huge city for that day. There were six miles of walls surrounding this metropolis. Six miles. It is estimated that the total population at that time was living within the walls was around 750,000 people. It was larger than Athens. Now, like most ancient cities, this one had been destroyed and rebuilt more than once. In one such destruction, in 146 BC, it was leveled into a smoldering heap. It was rebuilt, interestingly, by Julius Caesar a hundred years later. So, by Paul's day, it had now grown to this staggering size and population in only about 90 years. Well, naturally, Corinth maintained a sizable Jewish population and boasted several synagogues. Paul would have no trouble in finding Jews for hospitality there. Thus, we read in verse 2 that Paul found a Jew named Aquila. Now, Aquila was from Pontus in Italy, and he was married to Priscilla. Now Priscilla's formal name is Prisca, and we will find Paul actually referring to her as Prisca in some of his epistles. Now Paul must have formed quite a bond with this married couple, because he mentions them in in a positive way on numerous occasions. Now we are given the unexpected bit of information that Aquila came with his wife, to to Corinth because the Jews had been expelled from Rome by order of Emperor Claudius. So here we need to pause again and we need to realize that Rome was religiously tolerant as a national policy, but that doesn't mean that all were treated with equality. Now F.F. Bruce notes Something quite tantalizing. See, we have the record of Claudius' order to expel the Jews. But it is usually connected with a statement made by Suetonius that the Jews were sent away because they were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus. Now, it could well be. That Crestus was some rebellious troublemaker. But history seems to know nothing of him. If he existed at all. And this person would have focused his efforts among only the Jewish community, obviously. However, far more likely is that this is referring to Christ. Because Suetonius' statement is made in conjunction with his explaining that the main source of the trouble in, in, in the Rome Jewish community was the introduction of the way into the local synagogue there. That's what started everything. At least that's what he says. This caused all kinds of dissension, and it led to more trouble than the emperor wished to put up with. Now, As we've discussed before, Rome had little interest in the infighting that occurred within the various religions that were present in the empire, provided it didn't spill over into street violence, or it didn't upset the rest of the population, or it didn't threaten the Roman government. This applied to Judaism as well, so for Rome, their concern was political. And when dissension arose, for whatever purpose, whatever reason, the government dealt with it as a civil, political issue, not a religious issue. Thus, the expulsion of the Jews from Rome had nothing to do with Judaism. But it did have to do with a perceived, troublesome tendency of Jewish people to cause discord in towns and cities where they lived. This would have had a great deal, by the way, to do with how Nero would use the Jews in just a few years for his scapegoat as a result of his failed policies. Now some commentators say that because Aquila and Priscilla were believers that it was only Christians that were expelled from Rome. There is no evidence for that at all. As I said, there was no such thing as an identifiable group called Christians in this era until actually after the New Testament was closed. In fact, the Roman authorities constantly expressed total ignorance, a lack of interest in involving themselves in the internal disputes of Judaism. The key bit of information for us is that Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish not that they belong to a particular sect of Judaism called the Way. The idea that Claudius, the Roman emperor, would involve himself and sign a royal, de- royal decree to expel just a, a certain Jews, no doubt a very few of them, at that, is just not plausible. We can see why Paul hit it off with Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers. Just like he was. See, it's clear that Paul was supporting himself with his trade when he was in one place long enough. This actually was a common understanding for rabbis and teachers. See, a rather standard saying that explains this viewpoint is found in the Mishnah. And it says this, Do not make of the Torah a spade with which to dig in other words don't be a teacher of the Torah as a means to enrich yourself don't make money from it this by no means implies that a teacher or rabbi couldn't receive money for their efforts but except in unusual circumstances that should not be the main source of their income Both rather, rabbis and teachers in that era were expected to hold jobs. This is a good principle for both Christianity and Judaism. However, not too close of a parallel should be drawn. Being a rabbi was usually in that era not an occupation. It was an office that a Jew held. So being a rabbi wasn't usually a career or a profession. So Paul worked as a tent maker then, as did Achille and Priscilla. Now societies, at all times in history, tend to subdivide ourselves into cliques according to some standard or another. On well, Paul's day, the most common cause for this subdivision had to do with your occupation. So trade guilds were the customary means of society dividing themselves up into social units. It also represents the first attempt at organized labor so as to both police themselves and to assure that they were paid at some level, that is as a, as a group they found acceptable. In fact, it was common that a synagogue was created and and populated by members of a particular trade guild. However, in the Roman world, blue-collar laborers were looked down upon. Roman citizens did not usually indulge in manual labor. They saw it as beneath them. Thus we see that Jews and other ethnicities were the main source of labor for the Roman Empire. Not because they were forced, but because trade craft was seen in Jewish society as very honorable. Thus it would be natural that in the diaspora Jews would practice their craft in a society that welcomed it, that needed it. Now not surprisingly we find the biggest Jewish colonies within the biggest cities in the Roman Empire. Well, as verse 4 states, Paul went to the local synagogue at Corinth every Shabbat in hopes of making new believers. And we're told that these synagogues contained both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. So almost everywhere we followed Paul we find that some number of Gentiles was worshipping the God of Israel alongside their Jewish friends. But by labeling them as God-fearers, it's clear most of them did not convert to Judaism by having a circumcision. How exactly the Jews dealt with the ritual purity issues that god fears caused, we don't know. Very likely living so far from the temple and the priesthood, living in a Gentile-dominated world for so long. The majority of common, everyday Jews simply didn't pay much attention to Torah purity laws. But it's evident that the most pious among them certainly did. Well, after some months without them... Timothy and Silah finally arrive in Macedo- from Macedonia and they rejoin Paul. Now, Their presence seems to have allowed Paul to do a little less of his tradecraft to provide for himself instead do a little more preaching of the gospel. But note to whom he directed his efforts we're told directly, to the Jews. So while a, in a common way of speaking we can say that Paul was the disciple to the Gentiles. We regularly find paul uh, paul's efforts directed towards Jews in fact we're told that he taught in depth to the Jews about Yeshua being the Messiah. This means he was teaching them the scripture passages, mostly the prophets, that predicted the Messiah and then Telling these Jews how Yeshua fulfilled those prophecies. So we see him taking the opposite approach with the Corinthian Jews that he took with the Athenians. But as usual, some of the Jews of the synagogues accepted Paul's teachings, others became disturbed by them. So verse 6 explains that after trying long enough, Paul gave up on certain ones who turned hostile, and he turned their fate over to the Lord. When he'd had enough, Paul is said to have said, you know what, your blood be on your own ends. For my part, I'm clean. Now this expression derives from the Torah concept of substitution which is the central concept of the Levitical sacrificial system and therefore of redemption in Messiah Yeshua. That is, instead of there being a means of atonement and an innocent animal bearing the brunt of your offense, a person's actions will now bring upon that person what the law prescribes for their offense. In this case, the offense is to refuse the offer of salvation in Christ. And this amounts to blasphemy. It should be noted that this is the first time we read of Paul refusing to address certain of the synagogue community anymore. But let's also be careful with those final words of verse 6, which are, from now on I'm going to the goyim. The Gentiles. Paul is by no means saying he's just ended his association with Jews or bringing the good news to Jews. He's simply saying his main attention is going to be to the Gentiles, and we know this is true because as we continue in Acts, we find him going directly to the synagogue in other cities he'll visit, and of his preaching to the Jews. We'll continue with Acts chapter 18 next time.